My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. We have been working our way through a series over the last several weeks in 1 Corinthians. It's called The Cruciform Life. And what we've discovered is that for the Apostle Paul, the gospel changes everything. It turns upside down all the things that we take for granted, and it calls us to live with a different imagination about all of our lives. Last week, Corey talked about the cruciform identity, how the gospel transforms our very sense of self. And this week, we're going to talk about the cruciform body, how the gospel asks us to reimagine our lives as sexual beings. One of my favorite authors is John Steinbeck. In East of Eden, he says this, what freedom men and women could have were they not constantly tricked and trapped and enslaved and tortured by their sexuality. The only drawback in that freedom is that without it, one would not be a human. One would be a monster. The scriptures agree with Steinbeck. I don't know how often you're going to hear me say that. (laughs) None of us can escape this most basic of human realities, that from the time that we are born until the time that we die, and beyond that, into eternity and the new creation, we are sexual creatures because we are humans who have bodies. The author of Genesis put it this way when he said, male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. If this is true, then how does the gospel, how does the cruciform life ask us to reimagine life in our bodies. This is the question that we're looking at this week, and our text comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. You can read along with me. Or you do not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received From God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, visitors, welcome to Third Church. Uh, if you feel uncomfortable, don't worry. We talk about sex every week, so. Before we jump in uh, to uh, 1 Corinthians 6 uh, and glean from it what Paul wants to tell us about the cruciform body, I just want to frame our conversation by talking about two things real quick. The first is this. This is one of the most difficult and sensitive topics uh, you could ever talk about. No one wants to talk about sex. And the few that do, they definitely do not want to talk about it at church. Some of you have parents in the room, grandparents. Some of you as grandparents, your children are in this room. Last uh, service, my uh, wife and kids were in here. This, this is not difficult just because uh, it can be awkward. It's difficult because this topic is fraught with so much shame and guilt on so many levels. There is the shame of sexual addictions, the shames of failed and failing marriages, the shame of physical and psychic trauma, the shame of profound loss and loneliness. But, but we, we cannot not talk about this. If we want to live cruciform lives in our bodies, we have to talk about sex. The second thing I want to say is just to let you know, this is not a sermon about homosexuality. Better preachers than I have used this text as a moment to preach great sermons on that topic. I do not fault them for it, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, I believe uh, that I would not be able to share the fullness of what the text has to say to us today and that it might reinforce the lie that some sexual sins are worse than others, which is not true. Now, I'm a preacher who loves preaching, so I've listened to a lot of sermons over the years on 1 Corinthians 6. I cannot remember one that focused primarily on greed. In 14 years of pastoral ministry, I think two people have ever confessed to me the sin of greed. I have never read a book that is written on what does the Bible say about greedy people. And I've never seen a group of Christians protest Bank of America downtown with signs that say, God hates CEOs. (laughs) We're going to let the text speak as the text says to us today. So uh, I want us to look at three things. There are so many things to glean from this passage. We will not be able to talk about many of them, but we will talk about three. Three things that Paul wants us to know about the cruciform body. The first is this, that who we were by nature is not who we are. By grace. Paul begins by letting the Corinthians know that they have identity issues. They have forgotten who they are. He begins by saying, have you, not, have you forgotten that before Christ, by your sinful nature, you were like those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, the greedy, the sexually immoral, the slanderers. This is, this is who you were. But then he goes on to say, that is not who you are by grace. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. It's almost as if Paul is saying, whose prior actions do you really think matters the most? Yours towards wickedness or mine for your righteousness? The Corinthians are passive in these phrases. They are made 
holy. They're sanctified, they're washed, they're justified. God is the one who is acting in this text. It's not about what they have done, what's been done to them, but God's prior action in Christ on their behalf. And what he's saying to them and to us is that the cruciform identity is the foundation for the cruciform body. This um, idea that uh, who we were by nature is not who we are by grace um, has been brought home to me many, many times uh, in my ministry with college students at UVA. I remember one in particular. Uh, when our son Fisher was uh, born, this is about eight years ago, uh, I decided to do something for the men and women that I discipled to help them understand some of God's uh, broader vision for their sexuality. So here's what I did. Second day we had our son home. He could fit literally right here. Had them come over and I let them hold them. And uh, they're college students. They have no idea what to do with a baby, right? So, like, uh, so they're just holding him there. And at some point, I just wait for an awkward silence and I just say, Hey, Jed, you know what you're holding right there? That's a lot of what sex is about. And they all would go, <gasps> and just, just take him away from me, <laughs> put it somewhere else. Uh, it, was, it was just this profound moment. I felt like it was just a, a, a one important part of me being in their life is just to help them. They had never thought about um, their sexuality outside of their own personal, individual struggles. It's so, so separate. And I, I wanted to be able to tell them that part of that means that your body makes other bodies. <laughs> and your humans make other humans. And uh, there was one, one student, though. His name's Adam. Uh, he struggled with same-sex attraction since he was four years old. The first time um, that I met with Adam and he told me about his sins, he said what almost every other student uh, that came out to me said over those years. I know that you're not going to be able to meet with me anymore. I know that I know, that, I know that you won't disciple me anymore. And I'm like, why? Well, because, because of my struggle. And I would have to say, Adam, if I only met with college students who were not struggling with sexual sin this week, I would meet by myself in Starbucks <laughs> all the time. It would just be me and some coffee. No, like, I've seen your life. You're, you, are, you are walking towards righteousness and Submitting your life to Jesus. It's hard for Adam. When Adam came to my house to hold my son, do you know what he did? He refused to let me give him my boy. He said, why? Why would you let someone like me touch this perfect, unblemished boy? And I said, Adam, sit down and take my son. Because you're not just going to hold him. You're going to have to help us raise him. You're a part of this family. Who you are by your sinful nature, is not who you are by grace. This is the power and the beauty that we have to offer one another in community, in our families, with our children, with our friends, in our marriages, to remind one another of who we are. It's the first thing that Paul tells us. The second thing about the cruciform body we see is that, that we are to live like our bodies matter. This is a fascinating section of Scripture it begins with Paul. He quotes two slogans or sayings that were popular at Corinth in the time. The first is, I have the right to do anything. And the second is, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And both of these slogans help you understand 
Uh, what was happening behind the scenes in the Corinthians' thinking that made it difficult for them to live out life in their bodies? You see, the, the Corinthian church emphasized the spiritual over the physical or material. Right? Because that they were spiritual, right, the, the material no longer mattered. And that was popular in Greek thought at the time, but it really actually doesn't just come from there. It also comes from the the beginning of Christian thought. Some of the leaders at Corinth, when they realized, oh, okay, so these old food laws that the Jewish uh, customary laws, since they no longer apply to us anymore, well, then, then all of the bodily laws, they don't apply to us anymore either, especially the laws that prohibit sexual behavior. And so they were in this place where they were theologically justifying their commitment to sexual immorality. And what Paul does is he comes and he says to them, no, the material existence is just as important as the spiritual. And what we do with our bodies matters. What, what Paul knew is something that the Corinthians have forgotten and that we forget a lot too is this. Our bodies matter because we are whole people. God has created you to be whole people, integrated human beings. You have a body, you have a mind, and you have a spirit. And those three things are interconnected. And when we separate them, we are shearing off parts of our own Humanity. Sex is never just about sex. We are integrated human beings, whole people. Whatever impacts your body, impacts your mind, impacts your spirit. And you're not just whole people. That's a good word. Paul moves us further and says, we are whole people who are wholly united to Jesus. The most important thing about our bodies is not just that they matter as much as our spirits, but, but that there is a greater union that our bodies were made for, and it is the union with Jesus Christ. The body isn't for sexual morality. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. He goes on to say, Christ." And his body will be raised from the dead. And you and your body, by the power of God, will be raised from the dead as well. And you are united with Christ by your spirit. And what he's saying is this. Corinthians, if if you understood what it meant to be a whole person who was wholly united to Christ, it would change everything about your life in the body. You would not even think to go and sleep with a temple prostitute. You would never even consider an act of adultery. You would never long to look at pornography or to lust at another image bearer in your heart. It would change everything. Now, there is one problem with union with Christ. Everywhere you go, Jesus is there. That is, the, that, that is the downside of union with Christ, that you are inseparable. Luther put it this way. He said, you can't leave Christ at the brothel door. If we were to live as whole people, wholly united with Jesus, it would change how we live in our bodies. I think it's important for us to just, just note and to say out loud 
um, that everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus is a whole person without ever experiencing sex. You are whole because you have union with Jesus without ever being married. You are a whole and complete person because you are united with Christ. I think it's also important to to note, perhaps, um, I think we struggle sometimes with marriage idolatry in the church. Um, We fail to provide a vision for life outside of marriage. I think it's important to notice that uh, everyone we turn to to develop our New Testament ethic, Jesus and Paul were both single men, never married. Jesus is who it means. When you look at Jesus Christ, you are seeing what it means to be a fully redeemed human. He was whole. And so are you. That's the second thing that Paul tells us about the cruciform bodies, that we are whole people created for a whole union with Christ. The third thing we see in this text is this. The cruciform body is not your own. There are two movements in this last couple of verses. The first is a movement away from sin. He says, flee sexual immorality. The word flee, um, so what does it mean? What does it mean to flee? Obviously, it means to run away. I often think of Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount where he says, um, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And that's what's going on here in this text too. You You should read it this way. Do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for you to escape Sexual sin, do it. Now, I don't know what it takes for you. I know what it takes for me. And it's a little bit humiliating. At 41 years old, every time my wife leaves our house for a prolonged period of time, she goes away once a year uh, with her five uh, best friends from college. Uh, She's gone for four or five days. I've been doing this uh, as a college pastor, and uh, she leaves in a couple months. I'll do it as a parish pastor too. I'll have people come live with me because I just don't trust myself to be on my own. My story of redemption and sanctification in my body does not include, oh, I used to struggle with sexual sin when I was a college student and then I met Jesus and now it's all gone. That's not my story. I don't know how many people have that story. Um, If you do, it'd be great. Come tell me afterwards. I'd like to know you exist and that you're out there. Uh, uh, I need people my wife and I have always, almost always lived in an intentional community. We've had uh, people live with us for, um, for years and years and years at a time. And uh, that, that would be to our credit. People would say that would be to our credit. Well, it's, it's not. Yes, we did it because Jesus told us to do it. Let me tell you why I did it as a husband. I did it because I wouldn't be alone. I, ha- I have people live with us because I'm more righteous when they do. That's why. That's what it takes for me to flee sexual morality. And yet it's a little humiliating. That I don't, I don't have self-control that I wish that I had at 41. Well, it's my responsibility then to flee in any way I can. What is that for you? What's it look like for you as a teenager, as someone in their 30s, as someone who's single, as someone who's married, as someone who's in their 80s? What does it look like for you? 
to yield your body to Jesus? Do we flee sexual immorality? The word porneia there means any sexual activity outside of covenant hesed, covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, There's no other responsible way to render that word. It is a blanket term that covers many sins. That's that first movement. The second movement in our text is actually a movement to glory and to honor. And this movement is achieved by the realization that our bodies are not our own. They belong to God. And what Paul does for us here is he he presents a radically God-centered view of our bodies. He says, do you not know that your your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The temple is the place where God's presence dwelled. He doesn't dwell in the tabernacle. He doesn't dwell in the temple of old. He dwells in you and in me. God has taken up residence in your very body, in you. And what's beautiful about this, my favorite $5 uh, seminary word is the word theophany. It means uh, the place where God's presence is manifested. The person sitting next to you, every human being in this room who is a follower of Jesus is a walking theophany. A walking manifestation of the living God. That'll change the way you view somebody. That'll make them more than a possession you can consume with your eyes or your heart. That'll change the way that you view yourself. And what Paul says is because the Spirit resides in you, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. I love that in this text, God is the one who sets the value <laughs> on our bodies, not our culture, not our families, not the media. Your bodies are beautiful things. The God who is beauty itself, the thing itself, does not reside in ugly things. You have been made beautiful by him. He is the one who made your body. He is the one who dwells in your body. And he is the one who will redeem your body. And this is good news. And what Paul is driving to here is that the cruciform body is a beautiful thing that was created to bring glory and honor to the one who made it, who dwells in it, and to the one who will redeem it. Amen? Amen. This is a profound and beautiful vision of sex and of the body. Um, Before we uh, finish, I want to just do a a couple of things. I want to help us to actually begin um, to close that, that, that Corinthian divide between the body and the spirit. It is alive in us, and we are constantly being drawn back in different ways. Well, what I do with my body doesn't matter. Oh, Jesus will just forgive me later, or, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to get forgiven later. Like, that's, this, this is constantly alive in us. And so I want to offer to us a couple of spiritual disciplines, three in particular, to begin uh, walking out and living out this cruciform body life. It will help us to remember and to step more into being a whole people. Um, one really encouraged me. I don't know how many of you feel about spiritual disciplines. I love them. I used to hate them. 
It felt very weird to me because <laughs> um, uh, I, I didn't like being alone uh, or silent. Uh, I liked to talk to people and <laughs> I like to eat stuff. And so I was, a, I was, it took me a long time to really kind of come on the spiritual dis- disciplines bandwagon. But this is what's incredible about spiritual formation. All of life, every single part of your life is about your spiritual formation. There is no part of your life that is not about spiritual formation. And what I, love about, you know, what I love about spiritual disciplines is this. In my struggle with my sexuality over 41 years, let me, let me tell you what I do. I focus on these moments of failure, and I can't get out of them, right? I know, I know where my shame is. I know what I've done wrong, and I can't get out of them. And if I just look at those moments, I feel like I have never grown. I still struggle. But here's what's beautiful about spiritual formation. It is never about any one moment. Spiritual formation is about disciplines that shape your life. You may not notice a difference after one day. You may not notice a difference after one week. But you put three weeks, a month, six months, a year on these attitudes and these practices, and you will find that the very direction of your desires is being reshaped. Sanctification is happening. Here are the three. First is confession. Everybody in this room needs a space of ruthless confession to at least one person and to God. My son Fisher, uh, he's had a really hard uh, transition to Richmond. Um, It's like watching him go crazy in front of our eyes. He's acted ways I've never seen him act. Uh, He has been so, uh, it's been hard. It's been really, really hard. Uh, The other night um, when uh, he had just got through saying that he wanted to kill me, (laughs) uh, that I was trying to murder him which I was not, I promise. I was not trying to murder him. Um, and something else. He wanted, oh, he wanted to, to bite me, which is great. Um, I, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, he finally kind of comes around, and he, he apologizes, which was, I, I just, it was killing me. And I still wanted to strangle him at that point <laughs> as a father. He was like, Arr! But he, he apologized to me, and, um, and then I went away. I came back about five minutes later. He was still laying on my bed. And he had this look on his face like he was so ashamed and sad. I'm like, what's wrong? And he said, Daddy, I feel like it's still in me. And, um, and I was like, well, what are you talking about? I was like, well, he's like, well, I, um, I confessed it to you, but I just feel, still feel like it's I was like, well, have you confessed it to God? He's like, no, 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 I don't need to. I, I, I confessed it to you. I was like, oh, no, I made a huge mistake as a dad. You need to confess that to God. <laughs> you need to tell him. Like, I'm glad that you told me. But you need to tell him as Christians every time we sin. We sin against God and God first. It was beautiful. Um, he wasn't ready to do it right then. <laughs> That's just true for Fisher. It's true for us. Um, I want to encourage you as parents to, to consider confessing with your children. Conf- have a life of confession in your home. It's beautiful. When I confess my sins with Fisher... We don't come before the Lord as father and son. We come before the Lord as brothers in Christ. It's beautiful. We need rhythms of confession for bodily renewal. The second is fasting. This is the season of Lent. And there is no better way to close the distance between your body and your spirit than to fast, than to abstain from food and to let your belly try to drive everything. <laughs> it, is, uh, it, is, it is remarkable to me. Now, I have not had a lot of um, success with um, fasting um, like certain drinks or certain foods. Um, I have had the most success when, uh, for periods of time, I abstain from all food, and I drink mainly liquids. 
it does not take me very long before I start to just lose my physical self and long for food and long for sustenance. Um, and in those places, uh, I, I turn to God. That's what fasting does. It, it shows us that in our physical need, there's great spiritual need. It will close that distance for you. And finally, we need liturgies of sonship. I love stories. Do y'all love stories? There's nothing like a good story, is there? Uh, we live and die for stories. All stories have a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, if you pick up a good book, you watch a great film, it's the same every time you read it. It should be, or you watch it, it should be. Right? The words are on the same pages. The, the dialogue happens at the same moment. The cinematography is the same. But that is not true of the stories that we tell ourselves. Right? Those words shift right? to match how we feel about ourselves, our self-perception, or what other people say about us. Uh, the stories that we tell ourselves, especially the stories rooted in our shame, uh, they are not consistent. And so we need better stories, and this is what liturgy does for us. Liturgy captures what is most true about God, us, and the world, and it speaks over us the unchanging truths of Scripture over our lives and identities which are constantly trying to shift. We need liturgies of sonship. And when we say sonship, we mean it's for both men and women. That's one of the beautiful acts of subversion in the New Testament, is that the rights of the firstborn son aren't just given to the firstborn, but to all men and women who call Jesus brother and friend. One of the liturgies we're going to engage in soon, it's called the Lord's Supper. I just, just wanted to... Um, Remind us of those three. If you want to see that um, body-spirit divide begin to dissipate in your life and to become more of a whole person, then you should pursue confession, fasting, and liturgies of sonship. Let's pray as we talk together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. And we thank you for what you have shown us in this passage about the cruciform body. I thank you that the men and women in this room, they are beautiful things who have been created to bring glory and honor to the one who made them, who dwells in them, and who redeems them. My prayer for them is that as they enter into worship over the next few minutes, that they would encounter you in the places where they are most scared confused, afraid, and ashamed. And they would find you to be a father who does not reject them, does not crush them, but who welcomes them and heals them and establishes them in his own glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.